Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Let us begin uh, with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come and we are so grateful to be here in your presence. Lord, we are reading uh, a book about a man, Jonah, uh, who fled the presence of God. But Lord, that is not us. We are here to meet you. We are here to be with you. We are here, most importantly, to worship you. God, I pray uh, in these moments together uh, that you open our hearts, that you open our minds, uh, and that you give me the words to say, that your people might hear them. We pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So last week, uh, we began talking about the book of Jonah. We're going to continue this week. And uh, if you recall from last week, I mentioned, uh, well, any number of things because it took a half hour to deliver it. But uh, the sermon uh, mentioned that Jonah is unlike any other prophetic book in the Old Testament, right? Uh, and one of the ways in which this is true is, is Jonah is, well, unlike any other prophet in the Old Testament because, uh, well, he flees from the presence of God. And the word of the Lord indeed comes to Jonah just like he, the word of the Lord comes to every other prophet that's in our Old Testament. But Jonah does not, uh, well, initially deliver it. And instead he runs in the opposite direction, right? And so in this way, Jonah... Well, he's, he's not acting the role uh, that he should be playing in this book. What I didn't say is that the other characters, you could say the same thing of them as well. And we'll see that today uh, with the, the crew of this ship, the mariners, I'll call them. The mariners, they don't really play their role either. Technically, I mean, whatever you think of... Uh, uh, forgive me uh, if there are any Navy folks in here, but uh, those people who live on ships all the time, like the, there's uh, maybe some truth to the stereotypes back then uh, about what mariners would have been like, and yet we get uh, a very interesting picture uh, of the men we meet uh, in, in our story for today. And, and so, for example, you might expect them uh, to be uh, rough and tumble and uh, to, uh, to, to be ready to, you know, uh, to throw Jonah overboard immediately, but that's not actually what we get, right? We, we get people who are clearly uh, not God-fearers. They, they don't know who Yahweh is. They don't know who, who uh, the God of Israel is, and yet they seem to be very open to the acts of God. And so if, if you'll turn with me again to Jonah, we'll just read a little bit from here. Uh, I, I think the point gets driven home when Jonah reveals that he is, who he is, which is to say he's the one causing the trouble here. They're in this boat. Uh, the sea is storming. They're, they're in the Mediterranean, just so you know. Uh, and it looks like the boat is about to be destroyed. And the, the mariners on this boat are saying, what happened? Uh, who has caused this? Initially, they're throwing uh, cargo overboard to try to lighten their load and try to figure out, uh, like, let's get to land safely. Uh, they figure out that Jonah is the problem. And, uh, and then... Uh, Jonah says, throw me overboard, right? I'm the one who did this. And then the mariners don't act like you would think they would act. You would think they would be like, all right, let's get this guy out here. But in verse 13, 
we read this. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them, right? And so here they're told, well, just throw me overboard, but they, they row harder and harder. They don't want to kill Jonah. And then it goes on in verse 14, therefore, now they start calling out to whom? Well, they start calling out to the Lord. And whenever you see this Lord in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, this is the name of God, Yahweh. It's translated as Lord. And so they aren't just calling out to, to uh, an ambiguous God at this point. They are calling out to Yahweh. And they do it three times in this one verse. And it says, therefore, they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, third, second time, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. Right? And so here they are crying out to the God of Israel, who they apparently have just found out about. And yet their hearts are stirred. And then finally, they don't act the part that they should be acting in the final verse of this chapter, in verse, well, second to last verse, 16. And it says this, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And what fascinates me is it says, they offered a sacrifice again to the Lord, to Yahweh, and they made vows so they make these sacrifices and they make, make vows to the God of Israel because he has saved them from the situation that they were in. And in this way, the whole book is a bit upside down. You've got hero, uh, the, the heroes who are villains and villains who are heroes. Uh, and, and it's important that we read all of this properly. But there's, there's one phrase that seems to pop up a, a number of times uh, in, this whole, in this first chapter, and it has to do with the fear of the Lord. It has to do with fear generally, I guess, but specifically what we ended with here, and the, the fear of the Lord. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, keep them right here, uh, and just kind of like glance back to verse 5, where, where we start to see fear pop up. In verse 5, it says, The mariners were afraid. Here they are. They're, they're afraid because uh, in uh, the previous verse, it just said that their ship is being threatened, right? It's about to break up. And so what do they do? Well, they cry out to his God. Uh, each cries out to his God. And they, they hurl the cargo into the sea in order to lighten the load, right? And so it begins with fear in this way. And it's clearly a fear of the storm. And their response to this is to say, Okay, we will try to take care of the situation that we're in. We're going to lighten the load, and we're going to try to get through this. We're going to cry out to our gods and see what happens here. And then, in verse 9, if you fast forward a little bit, we meet, of course, Jonah. We met him already. But now he's describing who he is, and he says this. He's telling these mariners uh, who he is, and he says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. In a passing comment last week, I, I mentioned that this is an odd thing for Jonah to say at this point, and I wonder what Jonah means when he says that he fears the Lord. 
It's what I want to talk about today, fearing the Lord, because I don't know that Jonah quite gets it. When Jonah says that he fears the Lord, I think he might have something else in mind than what we find in all of the rest of Scripture. The fear doesn't stop there. In verse 10, it continues. So once Jonah reveals who he is, and once Jonah reveals what the real problem is, which is that he is running from God, well, now the mariners know they're not supposed to be afraid of the sea, though they are, right? There's something else that they are supposed to be afraid of. And in verse 10, we find, Then the men were exceedingly afraid. There it is again. And they said to him, What have you done? Right? What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so now their fear turns from the fear of the sea into the fear of, well, maybe Jonah, the situation that Jonah has created for them, maybe even the fear of the Lord, right? And then in the final statement, we get this in verse 16 again. We see that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And this time they offer sacrifices to the Lord and they make vows. I don't want to, I don't want to say too much about the mariners. I, I don't want to give them a full redemption story as if they fully understand exactly who this Yahweh is, right? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. We kind of get a story that has holes in it, and uh, it's, it's great for pastors because we get to fill in those details. Uh, like uh, Laura said, you get to read between the lines a little bit, and, and I might be tempted to, but I kind of want to go in a bit of a different direction with all of this. And I want to pull out, and I want to look at the fear of the Lord in Scripture as a whole and what we find, because indeed, the fear of the Lord is well, it's, it's all through Scripture. Old and New Testament is filled with this phrase and with this idea. And it's worth asking, what does this mean? And what does it mean for us? Why is this important today? Why, why does Scripture harp on this? A New Testament example can be found uh, in what's called the Magnificat, uh, Jesus' birth narrative. And here the angel has come to Mary. And Mary begins to, uh, uh, be, well, begins to speak poetically. And in the middle of this poem that she's speaking, she says this, she says, His mercy is from age to age to those who fear him. Right? To those who fear him. Or in Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is described as the discipline of the Lord or the instruction of wisdom wisdom. Or backing up in Proverbs, the very first chapter, one of the opening verses, we get a more famous phrase, which is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What does that mean, right? Why is that important? Why is fearing the Lord, what is the connection to knowledge or what is the connection to wisdom? Over and over again in Scripture, Scripture wants to connect these things. 
Again, whether Old Testament or New Testament, the Gospels talk about it, Acts talks about it, Paul's letters talk about it. And the point is this, that the theme is, is not a minor one. I actually think it's a, it's a major issue. And it, it doesn't just show up in Jonah chapter 1 uh, with these mariners and, and their fears. It shows up all over Scripture. And it's worth talking about. There's two examples I want to dig into. And if you've got your Bible with you, great. Let's open to Psalms together. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's one in the, the pew back. It's, it's the black book. Uh, and Psalms is right in the middle. Just, you know, open, open to the middle of your uh, Bible and you'll find the book of Psalms. And find uh, Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Starting in verse 4, we read the following. The psalmist is is writing and he says, I I sought the Lord, right? I I was chasing after God and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my, there it is, fears, right? I sought the Lord. I was seeking after God and God delivers me from all of my fears. But he continues. He says, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who are seeking after God, those who are uh, finding God, their faces are radiant, right? There's something about, again, the seeking after uh, this knowledge and understanding God and a radiance and and a glory And their faces are never ashamed. And the poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them, right? Those who fear him. There's that, there's that fear of the Lord again. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, is essentially uh, God's army, right? Uh, this, is, uh, this is God's nuclear weapon. Uh, the angel of the Lord, in some ways, is, is actually the presence of God's very self. And so the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And so there's this strange thing that we find in these verses where you are encouraged to both fear God and then earlier on it just told us in verse 4 that those who seek the Lord and those who find him will fear nothing. They will be delivered from all of their fears. And you might be tempted to say, well, which is it, right? Am I delivered from all of my fears or do I fear the Lord? And the answer, well, it's both. Turn again. Uh, Psalm 111. 111. I think what we find here is actually a beautiful encapsulation uh, of what it means to fear the Lord. Fearing the Lord is the last thing that happens in this psalm. It's the very last verse. It's the punchline of it all. And uh, just to give away the the start of it all, the first uh, nine verses, well, all of that 
that prelude is describing how great the Lord is, the works that the Lord does, just who God is, how loving and merciful this God is, right? Let's read it together. It's a psalm of praise. It's one of the happy psalms. Not all psalms are happy, but this one is. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all of my heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. And here it begins to describe who this God is. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them, full of splendor and majesty. This is the kind of God we serve, one who is splendor and majesty in all of his works, and his righteousness endures forever. This is the God we serve. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious. The Lord is merciful. This is the God we serve. And he provides food for those who fear him. There's that. And he remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are, are faithful. This is the God we serve. He's faithful. And those works are just. He's a just God. All of his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He's the God who redeems. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Again, it lays out very clearly a picture of the God that we serve. And then it says, the fear of the Lord, the fear of this God, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of this kind of God is the beginning of wisdom. And so again, we come back to the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? What did it mean for Jonah to fear the Lord? What did it mean for those mariners to fear the Lord? But most importantly today, what does it mean for us to fear the Lord? Here's what I want to say. There's two traps that we could fall into, and I don't want us to fall into either one. Trap number one is to act like the fear of the Lord doesn't have anything to do with fear, is, is to just pretend like there really is no fear at all, like as in the, the gut-level reaction of being afraid of God. That's, that is trap number one. And then the trap number two is to say that the fear of the Lord is everything we could say about God, is to say that, yes, God is so powerful and mighty, and then maybe add in some other elements like wrathful and dangerous and out to get, and, and, and then we get into this other trap that we don't want to fall into. And so we have to hold together two things. We have to hold together the, the magnificence of God, the grandeur, the, the, the glory, the bigness, the holiness of God. And if we glimpse all of that, we glimpse a sense of just how maybe small we actually are. And that might provoke fear in you. It does in me when I see it for what it really is. But that's not the stopping point, right? Because as we get to know God more fully, 
and put together the picture, of, uh, the, the big picture of who God is. It's not just that one side. It's all of those other things that Psalm 111 just told us about, like his graciousness and how he forgives and his love. And so we have this picture of God that we must keep together. If I'm doing my job on a weekly basis, I'm giving you a window into the character of God Almighty. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. If I'm doing my job, that's, that's what I should be doing. I, I'm sure I fail on routine occasion, right? But that's what I'm trying to do this morning. And I'm trying to take a step back. And sometimes we make it so churchy because we're in church. <laughs> but, but, but if we just step outside these walls and we try to maybe strip away some of that and we think about the glory, how, how wonderful the earth is, and how, how wonderful the lives that we've given are, and how grand history and the sweep of history is, and uh, the magnificence of the, the universe as a whole, it should drive us to a sense of just how big God is, because you've got to get bigger yet, if you want to begin to understand God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? Right? And if we begin to understand that, as I said, we begin to understand what it means to fear the Lord because of what a small role we play in all of it and just how big and awesome God is in all of it. I think what's really happening when we talk about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, is that we are increasing our understanding of who God is. We are seeing the world for what it is. We are seeing ourselves in perspective, sometimes for the very first time. Sometimes it feels like the very first time. And when you do that, you see how great and how grand and how big and eternal and immeasurable God is. And then you see how frail and how small and how finite you and I are. And yes, this can provoke real fear. For the mariners and for Jonah, as they're out on that sea and they realize that their death is, is, is impending, it's right before them, and then they realize that the God of the universe is capable in, you know, one second to calm the sea. They realize what they're dealing with, and they realize their role in it all, and they realize how big God's role is in it all. But if we stop with that kind of fear, we get to the wrong image of God. We get to a distorted image of God. That might get us into this understanding, as it did for the mariners, 
They, they were uh, scared straight, so to speak, right? They, they were so afraid, and they realized the grandeur of Yahweh and just what he was capable of, and it led them to this place where they sacrificed and they made vows to this God. And that's all fine and well, but it should lead us to a bigger picture of who this God is. C.S. Lewis calls that first kind of fear a servile fear. And it must give way at some point to awe and to wonder and to worship and to praise, much like Psalm 11, 111. It's a psalm of praise. It's a, it's a worshipful psalm because of just how grand and wonderful God is. And it gets to the end and it reminds us of what the fear of God is. The fear of God, I would argue, in some ways, is the knowledge of God. It is seeing God more clearly. We come to know his very nature. I've talked in the past about God as holy love. The holiness is maybe the fearful part, and the love part is the part that draws us in. In order to drive all of this home, I want to use two analogies. Two analogies. The first analogy uh, is one that I've not quite yet experienced, but I'm like on the verge of it. Uh, it's teaching a child how to drive, right? Teaching a child how to drive. Uh, I remember when I was being taught how to drive, and my parents told me, son, your car is a loaded weapon. <laughs> Did I have... Did any of you get this? Right? Uh, and so uh, the, the point being, you should fear the road and your car because you can kill somebody, somebody else or yourself. It's dangerous, right? You should fear it. But you shouldn't fear it in the way that should, would make you so scared to drive at all. It, you should fear it in the way that you respect it. You understand its danger, and you understand how it works, and you understand that uh, it needs your respect, right? Another example, uh, I think I told this story once, forgive me if I did, uh, it has to do with my neighbor growing up, his name is Sam Weissman, and Sam Weissman was a, uh, was, you know, he's the scrawny kid on the block and was always a little, a little too afraid of things. And so my brothers and I, we had created a bike ramp and we were you know, going over it and having a lot of fun with it and Sam just wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. He, wouldn't, he was too afraid. And then finally he gets up enough courage to get over that ramp, but he was too afraid. And, and he was living out of that fear of the ramp, so to speak, right? Uh, and what happens? Well, he gets barely over it, his bike f falls forward, and he breaks his arm. <laughs> and, and living out of that fear actually led uh, not to his safety, it, it led to a broken arm. Second analogy would go like this. Uh, this one's a little more personal, and uh, it has to do with the love that parents have for their own children. Some of you can relate to this if you have not had a child. Um, I, I still think you can relate to this on some level. A, 
a parent's love for a child, well, I'll speak from a dad's perspective here. From a dad's perspective, I, I love having a, a little one in the house. Asher's still five years old. Sometimes I, I think to myself, is he still that little, right? I can still do push-ups with him on my back. I can do about two, uh, but I can... <laughs> Uh, right, and I can still pick him up by uh, his foot and dangle him upside down. I don't do this often, I promise, uh, and it's all in good fun. I can still pick him up and like toss him halfway across the room onto a bed filled with pillows in a fully safe environment, if you're wondering. Uh, and I imagine to myself, like if someone were capable of doing that to me, Personally, like right now, like you could pick me up and hold me upside down with like one foot or throw me across a room. Uh, like I would think, wow, you must be really strong. You must be the strongest person in the world, which is, uh, I hope, what my son thinks of me, right? That uh, like, hey, my dad is the strongest dad in the world, right? That should, I'm not sure it does, but that should provoke a certain amount of fear, because he knows just what I'm capable of. My son has very little fear in life, so I'm not sure that that actually works. But, uh, but he, he should know what I'm capable of. But what my son also should know is just how much I love him. How much I deeply care for him. How much I want the best for him. And this... This is, I think, how we think of God often. God gives us this analogy. We prayed uh, the Our Father this morning, right? We use the analogy of God as Father on regular occasion. Jesus uh, hands this to us on a silver platter and says, uh, think about God as your heavenly Father. And your heavenly Father wants good things for you. He loves you deeply. And so in this way, when we think of the love that a parent has for a child, that, parent, that child could fear that parent in a way that is paralyzing. And when that happens, we call it abuse. And that is not the kind of fear that God wants from us. It's not a fear that keeps us held down. It's a fear that is an understanding of the grandness of God mixed with this understanding of just how much God loves us. And so if the Jonah story is unfinished in a way because we get to the end of chapter 1 and these mariners, well, they are worshiping or they're, they're sacrificing to God and they're making these vows to God it's not clear entirely that they get it, right? But if you recall, we read this other story from the New Testament. And it parallels really nicely, if you didn't notice, with our Jonah story. It's Jesus calming the waves and the sea. And he's out there sleeping on the boat, a lot like Jonah was, although he fulfills the Jonah role in the way Jonah was supposed to. And the disciples, if you didn't catch it, they were afraid. And they call out to Jesus, help us. Don't, don't just sleep there, help us. And Jesus gets up, and what does Jesus do? Jesus calms the storm. And then it concludes with this statement 
that the disciples are afraid of Jesus at this moment because they realize just how powerful he is. And there is a knowledge and an understanding of God in this moment. And their eyes are open to just how powerful he is. But the story isn't done there. We get the rest of the Gospels to fill out the nature of Jesus. And the nature of God that is demonstrated through the person of Jesus. And what nature is this? It is somebody who is willing to die on our behalf. I would imagine most parents in this room would say that of their own children. Your heavenly father not only says that of you and of me, but has done that on our behalf. That, I think, is what it means to fear the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom because our eyes are open to who you are. How wonderful you are. And we have awe. And and we have uh, a full heart. Because we we know what you've done. And the person of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection, we know who you are. You are a God who will stop at nothing, nothing, to be with us. Lord, you take the love that a parent has for a child and you magnify it and you perfect it and you show us what it truly means to be God. And Lord, yes, we stand in the fear of the Lord. But we also know that you are here on our behalf, that you have come to redeem us, and that you are on our side, rooting us on every step of the way. Lord, we thank you, and we praise you, and we worship you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.